0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Human rights shouldn't only be the domain of lawyers and academics, nor spoken of solely at times of crisis or scandal. Advancing human rights should be seen as an investment in our future and be at the centre of public policymaking. So believes Monash University Professor Michael Mintrom, who's one of the guests on this Big Ideas. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay. COVID lockdowns and vaccine mandates, the mistreatment of older Australians in nursing homes, the over-representation of First Nations people in jail, discrimination against LGBTIQ plus Australians. These are just a handful of issues where human rights are often invoked. But what if we had a more holistic view of rights? What if we considered the societal benefits and the financial rewards of policies that supported human rights? Investing in early intervention in supporting those who leave prison, for example, rather than our current approach, which is expensive and leads to recidivism. This discussion, hosted by the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University, examines how Australia can do better at protecting human rights. I'm speaking with Michael Mintrom, Professor of Public Policy, and Paula Gerber, Professor of Human Rights Law, both from Monash Uni. Michael's current book is called Advancing Human Rights. Paula is the editor of two recently published collections, Worldwide Perspectives on Lesbians, Gays and Bisexuals, and Critical Perspectives on Human Rights Law in Australia. Welcome Paula and
0: Michael. Thank you for having us. Great to be here.
1: Thank you. Michael, I'll come to you Uh, first of all. I was thinking when I was sitting down to write some questions that human rights discourse can seem to some people to be rather distant from the challenges that public policy seeks to address. You know, some issues at first glance might not necessarily seem to be about human rights per se. Is your book, though, seeking to change how we see human rights and its relationship
2: to policymaking? Thanks, Paul. Yes, I think that's a good way to think about the book. I, I had recognised that I'd been working quite a lot looking at the treatment of public policies as investments. And so and a, a classic example would be early childhood education or education in general, and recognising that uh, there's lots of economic analysis that su- suggests that this is very good for society in, in a sort of a cost-benefit analysis terms. But we also know that when people have higher levels of in- individual education, that that's incredibly important for them in terms of their their life chances and their ability to, um, well, to if you like, to defend their own human rights or put forward their human rights. So that that led me to think are there a lot of instances where we could think in this kind of way about better public policy design actually leading to better outcomes for individuals and society as a whole. That takes us beyond the kind of cost-benefit analysis, which is often at the heart of of traditional kind of ways of thinking about policy and doing policy analysis. But you do see rights as an investment in in the future, yeah. Well, to the extent that if we actually take rights seriously of individuals, uh, and and right from the get go, then then that increases the chances that those individuals will uh, flourish through the life course and contribute to society as best they possibly can. And I think sometimes we 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 ignore that that possibility.
0: And I think if I can jump in there, I think the arguments that that Michael's making actually are more palatable with politicians. I find if you talk to politicians about human rights, they often tune out. Uh, It's just not something that they think is a vote winner. But if you talk to them about the economy and the economic benefit of respecting human rights, you get a better hearing. And there's a professor in uh, Massachusetts, Lee Badgett, who actually uh, measured the economic impact of homophobia in India and said by excluding these uh, members of the LGBTIQ population from a meaningful contribution to uh, to society, it actually was to the detriment of the GDP of the the country as a whole. So it can be a really powerful argument for advancing human rights. How much
1: do you think, Paula, Australians care about human rights? You know, it can be kind of an amorphous concept to to many people. On the other hand, though, you know, we have been criticised here in Australia by international organisations about certain aspects in our human rights record. Do you think it's something that we Australians care about and should care about?
0: I think I, I am a bit cynical about this. I think people care about it when it's close to home. So one of the things that I found really interesting when we were, had a couple of years of lockdowns in Melbourne through COVID, uh, people were talking about their rights being violated by lockdowns and mask mandates and curfews, and suddenly the language of human rights resonated with them because they felt personally their rights had been infringed.
1: People who'd never spoken of human rights at all in their lifetime, all of a sudden became converts to rights. Exactly.
0: So um, I actually have just been teaching human rights advocacy and I had a a guest lecture by uh, Chris Sedoti. and one of the things that he said that really resonated with me was he thinks that part of the problem and the disinterest with human rights in Australia is that we haven't suffered enough when people are the result are victims of victims of trauma, of genocide, of war, of persecution, they tend to know about their human rights. You talk to any asylum seeker who's been locked up on Manus Island or Nauru, and they know about their human rights. But you talk to a, uh, a middle-aged, white, privileged, cisgender man walking down Burke Street, uh, not so much.
1: Yeah. On the other hand, if you talk to people with a disability, if you talk to First Nations people, if you talk to LGBTIQ plus people, rights are not, they're not abstract concepts to people like that, are they?
0: Not at all. And and part of my research for my PhD, which is a while ago now, was about human rights education in schools. And I interviewed teachers and I said, Why are you teaching your students about human rights? Because it's actually not required by the curriculum. And in every case, the answer was because it matters, because my parents came to this country as refugees or because I'm of Asian descent and I've experienced discrimination or because I'm part of the LGBTIQ community and I know what it's like to be treated differently. So they were advocating for human rights because it mattered to them personally. And we are really going to struggle to advance human rights in this country if it requires people to have been personally impacted by human rights violations before they're ready to stand up and speak up.
1: Michael, in the beginning of your book, you remind us that COVID... Well, it did spark a debate, as we've just uh, spoken of, about human rights, you know, in terms of lockdowns and mandates. And we've covered this on Big Ideas before, and I don't see any need to revisit it. But interestingly, you, you make the observation about how working from home as a result of COVID opened up new work opportunities for people with a disability. Can you can you talk about that, How how the rights of this group of Australians to participate more fully in the labour market may have actually been enhanced by the pandemic.
2: It's an interesting case and I actually talk about it at the start of the book that there was a student at Monash who asked me to supervise a research project for her and she wanted to write on this particular topic and I guess at some level I knew that she had a disability, but it was never at all salient in our conversations. I hmm. just thought this is an incredibly creative person, you know. And then then she posted on on LinkedIn this picture of herself graduating, and there she is in this massive wheelchair thing that I'd never seen on the Zoom, you know. And and she's saying, she she wrote this thing, but I actually quoted it in the book, saying, When I was born, people didn't give me much of a chance, you know. And then she talks about the things that have happened in her life. And the topic that she chose to work on was looking at how lockdown and working from home had allowed people who often would be kind of discriminated against in the workforce or marginalised to be able to really fully participate. So that really got me thinking and I started looking at uh, some of the literature, I was exploring it with her a bit too. Uh, But an article that really interested me on this was in the New York Times where someone said, you know, why we haven't had more working from home is because we've lacked imagination. Mm. To think about that and and I just think that's that's very cool. Paula, in terms of your work, thinking about all the ways that you've thought about human rights and and, and the possibility, that we haven't had the imagination to think about how we could expand this. So coming back to your point about we need to experience trauma, it's almost like, well, maybe we just need to have a bit of a shot of, of creative thinking here mm. uh, and actually say, well, lockdown was terrible and it was catastrophic for a lot of people. But it also had some it's led to us thinking a little bit differently about about some things and. We're not going to go back to the way that we were with the workforce before where everyone sort of showed up five days a week to the the workplace and and that's actually a positive in in, in many ways. I mean, what you're saying is that, in a sense,
1: working from home made certain people's disability less visible in, in the case that you just quoted, invisible. And I'm suspecting that perhaps it did so to many employers as well one wonders what that says, though, about the future employment opportunities for people with a disability.
0: It, it does worry me that people with disability got more opportunities because their disability was invisible. And in America, in July, it's Disability Pride Month. We have nothing like that in Australia, and I would like to see people being employed, being given opportunities because of their disability rather than because we can't see their disability.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, it, it's a good point.
0: It's, it's almost like for LGBTIQ people being in the closet.
2: Yeah, but so, so there's something in this that we're kind of circling around and I think it's really worth exploring this. I, I said it's like we, there was that lack of imagination, but then you're saying, yeah, but wait a minute, we could actually be getting to the right outcome for the wrong reasons in a way. So I think it's something about trying to be more expansive and inclusive in our thinking right from the get-go, which kind of excites me about, say, public policy development. Uh, and so that's why I, I like the idea of co-design and really seriously engaging with communities to talk about where should we be going here, So sort of saying what's the public value that we're pursuing here and then what, how, how do we shape public policy to get to that end? But very often we don't have those conversations and that's that kind of shortcut or short circuit that happens, I think, Does it it happens to the detriment of a whole lot of other other opportunities. I think that's probably where we would agree, Paula.
0: I think that's right, and I think we perhaps just come to the same point from different uh, angles, if you like, because, Paul, earlier you said about do Australians care about human rights? I don't think they know enough about human rights to care about it. So I've been banging on for years about the need to have human rights education in schools. If our children grow up knowing about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, knowing about the Convention on the Rights of the Child, knowing about equality and non-discrimination principles, then they're not foreign ideas. It's something that it becomes part of the core the core values that they hold. Mm. And then it's much easier to have conversations about how do we protect and respect the rights of everyone.
2: And also I think if, if people are arcing up or... Challenging that pursuit of rights to actually, you know, in a kind of kind way, actually ask why, what's going on for you that you're that you're holding that view, uh, rather than sort of this kind of moral majority kind of perspective that sometimes people have is, oh well, these terrible people are doing this now they want all these rights that kind of thing.
1: You also say that you think we need to go beyond thinking about human rights in legal terms, uh, don't you? That it's not just kind of law that's at the centre of this, that, that basically rights really need to be about the lives of people and the potential to improve the lives of people. And just passing a law doesn't necessarily guarantee that.
2: I have to be a bit careful because I've got this professor sitting here, so I'm not going to I'm not going to diminish the importance of the law. But I do think that uh, yes, that having that kind of more expanded view of possibility with public policy is crucial. So you know, my kind of starting point on this is to say public policies should be about encouraging human flourishing, and that none of us have anything to lose from that. Uh, and we have so much to gain. And then if you think about a country like Australia and the variety of, you know, people here and, and, and the the countries we've come from to be here, you know, our history, all of that kind of stuff, there's just so much possibility that, that if we could kind of unleash it, that would be amazing.
1: I do think, Paula, though, that, that you're of the view that simply enshrining lo- rights in law is not a, of itself enough.
0: Exactly. Michael and I are in complete step and sync on this because what I've realised through my many, many years of research in human rights is that law is only ever one piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And one of my bugbears is that I think lawyers have hijacked human rights and there is this sense that human rights and human rights law are one and the same. Now, we had human rights long before we had human rights law. We have them because of our inherent uh, dignity and value as human beings. And law has just enshrined that into some, some words on the page. But if you change the law without bringing society along with you, you're not going to make any progress. And the example that I think really highlights this is South Africa. It was the first country in the world to enshrine in its constitution the right not to be discriminated against on the basis of sexual orientation. That happened in 1995. Nelson Mandela said, I know what it's like to be discriminated against because of your innate attributes. We are not going to discriminate against anyone. South Africa is still one of the most dangerous countries in the world for a gay person to live. There is gay hate crimes on the streets constantly. Corrective rape of lesbian women is a very real risk.
1: That's a terrible expression, by the way, too, isn't it?
0: It's it's a terrible mm. practice.
1: Yeah, terrible practice. But
0: um, correct, yes. Corrective this, rape. This though, idea but. that you just haven't had the right sexual experience with a man. If I rape you, well, of course you're going to turn towards men. I mean, it's it's just abhorrent, mm. but it is a very real risk that same sex attracted women in South Africa and many other parts of Africa face. So yes, Africa's got a great constitution let's celebrate that, but it's actually not making that much difference to the day-to-day live experience of LGBTIQ people in South Africa. So law alone is never enough.
1: Yes, it's about changing culture and, as you said before, about education. Let's work through some of the examples that you go through in your book, Michael. Uh, Prison release, you're right, is one area where society would greatly benefit from putting the progression of human rights at the heart of policy making. Just talk about that briefly, if you can.
2: Well, it's deliberately a provocative kind of case, it seems to me. So I, I start with some really cool recent quantitative research that was done by a group of researchers at the University of New South Wales, and they got um, the records of a lot of people who had been in prison and and then released and looked for patterns in them. And what they found, that a lot of people are released from prison and they, they are homeless, pretty much. And so within a relatively short amount of time, there's a common pattern of recidivism, which means that other people become victims of crime and then the former prisoners are put back into prison and that's all pretty expensive stuff. So what these researchers found was that instances where, and they found a, pretty, a very strong pattern here, instances of, of prisoners who were released and put into public housing were much less likely to enter into a life of crime again because they actually had stability. And, and they, they not only showed this with the, the quantitative evidence, but also backed it up with case studies of people's lives. Now, what that suggests is that there would be value to society for governments to prioritise public housing for former prisoners. Mm. The sort of policy intellectual in me says, great, the the sort of, like, listening to the, the the popular political discourse, that part of me thinks this would never fly because there'll be people out there saying, look at my kids who are hardworking and they they really want to get public housing, but they can't get it because these prisoners, they've been getting it ahead of us. So this is a case where it's like, We have to, what I guess I would suggest is we need to kind of park our emotions, uh, our emotional responses, and actually say what's best for society here. And there's actually pretty clear evidence on that. And that's kind of the approach that I've taken through the book. So,
1: yeah, no, I think it's a really good example. And it points, I think, Paula, to a challenge for human rights. How do you get support for the enhancement of human rights protections for prisoners or even say asylum seekers, when these groups of people in the community are demonised and when there's just no political capital to be made from granting those people increased rights?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a hard one, uh, because particularly the previous government did a really good job of, in the minds of the Australian public, linking people arriving by boat to seek asylum with terrorists. And we, a number of people, go. These are a the security risks. We decide who comes to Australia, and the language of you know they're illegals was bandied around. Well, it's not illegal to seek asylum. So where the people advocating for the rights of refugees really got some traction was when it was get the kids off Nauru, and when it was children that were being arbitrarily detained and their rights being violated, it became more palatable to the Australian public. And I think one of the ways that we do, well, there are several ways that we can uh, try and overcome this, this sort of bias and innate stigma and prejudice that we have against certain people in our society. And one is by sharing their stories. So it's very easy to talk about people in prison as this Single monolithic group of, of offenders. But actually, if you hear the stories, some of them are there because of child abuse, because of family violence, because of homelessness, because of mental health. There's generally a reason and a story behind why they're there. And if we can humanize them, then it makes it uh, easier to be effective advocates for their rights. Mm.
1: I think another good example that you draw on, Michael, is the appalling treatment of older Australians in nursing homes and aged care facilities, which we saw reported on in the Royal Commission and uh, we saw throughout the COVID pandemic, especially the early days of the pandemic. I mean, it struck me that you don't need to invoke human rights to see the need for policy changes in this area. But by talking about something that I think we all, as fair-minded people, find deeply offensive, the treatment of elderly people in this way, by placing it in the context of human rights, you do get people who might not otherwise think about rights thinking about them and connecting them with an issue like that, don't
2: you? Yes, I think that's, that's right. And one of the things that I said with respect to that is that if allied health services could be made more readily accessible by elderly people. They could quite likely stay in the community for longer and that that actually has a lot of benefits for them, their their, their mental health, their physical health, but also for for others around them, that that this can be a a good outcome. But it's also one that, in fact, you know, from a sort of a, a cost benefit Economistic perspective is also quite appealing as well. Um, mm. it, it's, it's less costly to society. So there are those kind of things. I think, Paul, I really agree with you. Um, the case you, you, you talked about how when the asylum seekers was, was talked about with respect to the children, that changed the way that people thought about this. And so I think framing is really important here. And, and also, Paul, you know, like when we we're talking about, about people in prison just now, that there is that sense to think about, say, prisoners as being just bad people and not actually asking ourselves, why, how did they end up there? So so this reframing mm. and actually saying, you know, there are victims here and believe it or not, they actually need a lot of help. That, I think, is a very important shift. And it's one that, um, that for example, in the book, I talk about the trying to break the the school to prison pipeline, which is where... Kids are, let's say, misbehaving in school. I don't know it's probably a better term to use for this. And then they get suspended and and then that, that gets into a cycle and then it becomes a possibility that they become much more susceptible to having a brush with the law and getting into a youth detention centre and, and, and things just escalate from there. If you turn it around and say, well, these let's say, young people who are looking like real thugs and bullies are actually real victims. They, they've they got a lot of issues they're dealing with trauma. All of that would lead to a desire to have early interventions. Mm. And, again, from a cost-benefit analysis, it's just so worthwhile to get in and do that stuff early, upfront work and and help people to to live... Lives successfully on the right side of the law, for example, I mean, it's good for them, it's good for society. And, 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 and from a financial perspective, again, this has been modelled out. It's, it's just so worthwhile. So I think this framing thing becomes really a critical starting point to thinking along these lines. I think I'm right in saying that children
1: aged 10 and around about 10 can be imprisoned in some states and territories in Australia. There is a plan I understand, to raise the age of criminal responsibility. Some states and territories are looking at 12, some are looking at at 14. But that seems remarkable, Paula, to me, that 10, even 12-year-olds can be incarcerated in Australia.
0: A 13-year-old is not allowed to have an Instagram account or Snapchat or any social media accounts, but they can be imprisoned. Mm. Now, there is something fundamentally flawed about that thinking. How can they lack the cognitive capacity to be on social media but have the cognitive capacity to be held accountable for minor criminal offences? And all the research shows us that once children are detained in youth detention centres, the risk of them uh, having a lifetime journey of of conflict with the law is, is markedly increased. It is... A shame, I think, on, on our society that it's only when these sort of the abuses of children, the detention of children are highlighted by the media that people get involved and they get um, activated and, and become advocates for this. So, you know, the Four Corners episode on Dondale was a turning point in raising the age of criminal responsibility because we saw in our living rooms, on our screens, exactly what was happening to children in detention. So, yes, I think that uh, one of the, th- the areas that we have a lot of work to do in Australia is in protecting the rights of children. We have ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We do not have a Child Rights Act. We There is a big gap between our international commitments to protect children's rights and what we've actually entrenched in our laws in Australia. And so raising the age of criminal responsibility to 14 at a minimum, which is what the UN says should be the minimum age, uh, is something that we urgently need to address.
1: Mm. Michael, you also talk about the terrible Dondale situation, which was uncovered by Four Corners. And you remind us too that uh, disproportionately the kids in Dondale are Indigenous. Mm. Incredibly disproportionate, and uh, and the conditions there were shocking. I, I just wonder, in terms of how we get better outcomes in this area, whether a, a voice to Parliament mechanism enshrined in the Constitution, which would allow Indigenous people to have their say and have that say reflected in better policy making by government, uh, could that potentially help to? get some of the policy outcomes that would benefit indigenous people that that you're talking about in, in your book? Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but let me build build on that a little bit. Uh, in the book, I give an example of a small town called Burke in New South Wales. And what happened in Burke is is really inspiring because uh, elders and other members of the community recognized that typically young First Nations people were the ones who were ending up in youth detention and said, we've got to do something about this. And they were inspired by a concept called justice reinvestment from the United States, which basically says, I mean, it's a wonderful concept, it's quite hard to put in practice, but the concept is that if you can save money in the prison system, then you could reinvest it into things like early childhood education and better health care, um, you know, better intervention with counselling and schools for kids. It becomes a little bit more tricky because of the politics of budgeting. But what happened in Burke was that the community got together and they worked at saying if there are kids who are caught drunk driving or stuff like that. We don't necessarily have to put them into detention. There's a there's a degree of discretion here that we can have. And uh, after a, a relatively short amount of time, there was quite a turnaround. I, you know, I'm thinking about 18 months, something no. like that, that there was a, a, a real observed change in, in the policing practices, how the police were working with the community, and and the rates of, of youth incarceration in, 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 in detention centres went down quite a lot. So my hunch on this is that... If you see something like that as a microcosm of how a voice to parliament could work, then this would be a really fantastic thing because it's basically saying, let's have more really thoughtful conversations, let's really listen to the communities who are dealing with these challenges and this trauma and say, what can we do to turn outcomes around here? That's just got to be a good thing for the, for, for all, of, all of Australian society.
0: One of the things that uh, we've learned over time is that a slogan can be very powerful. And the disability community came up with the slogan, nothing about us without us. Mm. And Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child says children have a right to participate in decisions that affect them. Why we can't translate those concepts to Indigenous Australians is beyond me. The arrogance of our politicians to think that they know best what's going to work for Indigenous communities, really beggars belief. And so a voice to Parliament, I think, is the minimum that we can be doing to, to listen to, to involve, to actually self-determination of Indigenous Australians so that, exactly like the example Michael gave in, in Burke, that they know what is going to work for their children and to keep them out of youth detention, let support and enable them to, uh, to build on those solutions.
1: I mean we know that the voice to parliament is not a third chamber an accusation that was bandied around earlier on when this was suggested nonetheless would it be a stretch to call the voice the voice a rights mechanism of sorts Paula
0: I think that could be the death knell of it, yeah. given, <laughs> given the the, uh, the attitudes in Canberra to uh, human rights. I think framing it in, in a human rights language would actually not assist the case. I think talking about it as as non-discrimination, as equality, as equity, as a fair go, the sort of language that Australians can relate to might be more helpful.
1: Yeah. Let's move on to an area that you've done, I know, a lot of work in, Paula, on LGBTIQ rights and anti-discrimination measures. The previous coalition government, we know, legislated for marriage equality. Many saw that as a big step forward. But more generally, how would you describe the record of the previous government and we will in a minute talk about the new government and the new parliament, but for the time being, how would you describe the record of the previous government in helping to make Australia safe for LGBTIQ plus Australians?
0: Shameful. The path that we had to go down to get marriage equality, that is the postal survey... Was incredibly damaging for LGBTIQ people. To have their relationships being voted on by the majority of Australians was completely unnecessary, was damaging to their mental health. Uh, we've had, got lots of data about the increase in calls to uh, services uh, for LGBTIQ people and for mental health generally uh, that went through the, that increased during the, ma- the postal survey. We know that for young LGBTIQ people questioning their place in the world, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, giving licence to the No campaign to run these really damaging negative campaigns that basically said, you know, you are not equal, you don't deserve the same rights as, as the rest of us. That was incredibly harmful and the harmful legacy of that lives on in the LGBTIQ community today. So, yes, the previous government did give us marriage equality, but we paid a big price for for achieving that. And what I'd also say is that because they said, oh, we're going to have a respectful debate, there was nothing respectful about it, it actually uh, mobilised and galvanised the opponents of LGBTIQ equality rights, and they are continuing to campaign against human rights for LGBTIQ people. So what we have seen post-marriage equality is the defunding of the Safe Schools Program, which was about protecting LGBTIQ children from bullying in schools. We have seen three attempts to pass the religious discrimination bill. Now, I'm all for protecting religious freedom. Nobody should be discriminated against on the basis of their religion but that is a shield not a sword and the religious discrimination bills that Scott Morrison was proposing were a sword where religious people could uh, use their religion to sanction their bigotry to publicly demonize lgbtiq plus people so yeah it's not a, i don't think it's a it's a positive legacy i think history will judge the previous government harshly
1: just want to pick up, Michael, on one of the things that uh, Paula was talking about there, the bullying of kids at school because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. You remind us of the heartbreaking suicide of Tyrone Unsworth in 2016. Terrible story. In terms of policy and what we can do, what, what, what more should we be doing to protect school kids like Tyrone from that terrible experience?
2: Well, I think that the um, the approach that was used that, that Paula just talked about that was that was defunded was an example. You know, there are there are educational programs that you can have in schools that can help to reduce that kind of bullying and um, and marginalisation. But I don't want to I don't want to suggest that it's that that it, this is this is easy or that yep. passing of a particular piece of legislation will do this. I mean, I think that you have to have some kind of broader social change. And what's nice is when policy kind of aligns with that social change. And, that, you know, there are different ways of thinking about that, that, that maybe the wave of a certain sentiment is then backed up by policy change. But what we do know, and this is you know, what, what Paula was getting at there, there's there's been a survey, regular survey being done now of kids in school, and, and, and it's consistently showing in Australia that LGBTQI plus kids are actually feeling you know more bullied than other kids and um, and that the, the 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 schools are not necessarily stepping in to change that when I was working on on, on this case in the in the book I looked at uh, evidence around bullying and bullying programs in the US and you sort of see a similar pattern here but the point is that you actually see that there are potential solutions and coming back to my kind of the point that I bang on about in the book is actually the cost associated with these kind of programs that would allow young people to feel good about themselves no matter what their identity is and to help them through all of that stuff, it, the cost of that is, is relatively low compared with many other programs and also compared with the costs of remedial programs or interventions that are going to happen later in life. Uh, because people have had these difficult and challenging yeah, times. Th- th- that,
1: that's, that's right. The psychological toll on these kids is carried through into adulthood. Yeah. We know increased rates of anxiety and depression. Now, I think it's really valuable that you keep coming back to that point, that this is not... Just about virtue signalling. This is this actually, even for the economic rationalists uh, in Parliament, there's a financial gain as well as obviously uh, human rights as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways. The, so I've just focused on the cost side of things. There's also the, the the lost benefits, right? Which is that that I think. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a child psychologist here, so I don't you know. But but it's a, along the lines of that. What happens when people are bullied is that they tend to sort of marginalise or hold themselves back and kind of move to the edges of of situations. So if we think about a society and the, and the flourishing of individuals, there's a group of people in society who are kind of almost put in a position where they hold back for themselves from seeking to be engaging in parts of public life and flourishing in ways that would be incredibly beneficial for us all. So we so we lose out the costs associated with this, but also we lose a bunch of benefits. Mm. And so yes, it is there is an econometric or economistic argument there that can be made. And you know, if that if that helps to be one if that's one that helps to get a better outcome, then I'd say we should use it.
1: Yeah, I want to stick with this issue and the issue of, of gender identification uh, as well, because this has been at the heart of so many debates over the last few years. Uh, Labor's come to power and they've committed, Paula, to counting LGBTIQ people in the next census. Obviously, that will there'll be a base of data from which better policy presumably can flow. Uh, what else would you like to see, though, in terms of anti-discrimination Protection. What, what what are some of the what are some of the other measures that would be on your wish list of rights protections?
0: Well, I think it's really important to break down the LGBTIQ label, and there is certainly um, increased discrimination against transgender people. So, I would like to see the government increasing support for transgender community. Uh, and for their mental health. When it comes to the eye in LGBTIQ, the intersex infants, it's a different issue there. What we see happening with intersex infants who are born where their their sex is is neither completely male or completely female, and gender normalising in quotation mark surgery is performed on them without their consent, and it's not medically necessary. And I think it's, a, it's we need urgently to ban. Uh, intersex surgery, as has been done in Malta and in Germany. When it comes to the LGB part of the the acronym, uh, conversion practices are still practised in Australia. That is where uh, a person is subjected to treatment, again in quotation marks, to try and change their sexual orientation. That's been banned in Victoria. It needs to be banned in the uh, in the rest of Australia, and a very easy, quick fix that the federal government could do straight away is amend the Sex Discrimination Act so that children cannot be expelled from school, so that teachers cannot be fired by religious schools because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. That would overnight make LGBTIQ students and staff feel much safer in the school space.
1: I mean, this parliament looks very different to previous parliaments, not just a change of government, obviously. We have a range of new independents, many of whom have come to power on, on, on matters of principle and do not want to be a part of the, of the two-party system. We've had, And also the Greens have expanded their numbers in parliament. Do, do you think that that will make these kinds of discussions easier to have, Perhaps I'll direct this to you, Michael. I mean, do you think, do you think this new Parliament, because of its unique composition, might be able to
2: get more done in the rights space? Yeah, I think that there's more chance of that probably than in a than in a less kind of diverse Parliament. And 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 the reason I say that is I just think that there's to get anything done in a Parliament where there's people from a range of parties there. You actually have to start having conversations, and some of those might be kind of uh, difficult conversations. But that's actually good, and that's that's good for democracy. So I think that that's if we have a, a, a move in, in party politics to, towards more independence or to more, towards greater di- uh, party representation in parliament, I think that's a good thing. Let me just also pick up on on, on you know points that, that that Paula was just making. Then it's interesting that you can have protection of human rights legislated. But I think what we need to see when you were talking about unpacking the, the label of LGBTQI is like, well, you'd have different kinds of interventions or programs, so we've got to have the, the rights absolutely there, but then we say, what are the programmatic things that can be done? And they're going to be different for different groups. And that's, that strikes me that comes right into, into policy design kind of territory, and there's just a lot of room there for some very creative and, and very positive policy development work to be done. Uh, one of the books
1: in this series, in the National Interest Series, actually, that I was speaking to the author of recently was Gareth Evans' book, and he's a former Attorney General of, of Australia, as, as we know, and he, he says in that book that, you know, one of the things, one of the lost achievements, if you like, and things he would have liked to have seen was some form of Bill of Rights in in Australia, and we spoke a bit about what happened when this issue got brought up politically and how divisive the debate was. You know, we're talking a lot about rights tonight and the, and the rights we want to see protected. And we, we are one of the few countries, uh, democratic countries, not to have some sort of national rights mechanism. Do, do we need one, Paula? And, and if so, what, what form, what shape should it take?
0: Yes, we need one, um, and this is a space where I think language is really important, and uh, we've done a lot of research that says using the term Bill of Rights is actually turns people off, because they immediately think of America, and they think of the right to bear arms, and the gun culture, and they run a million miles. So uh, I think the better language to use to get people uh, comfortable with this idea is Charter of Rights or a Human Rights Act.
1: And just to clarify, that would be an act via legislation as distinct from something embedded in the Constitution?
0: Yes, it would be a legislative act that could be amended and tweaked as as uh, time passes. And it would ideally give effect to our international human rights obligations. And it is a natural piece of legislation to give effect to what we've said globally we stand for. And What's really interesting to me is that some of the states and territories have got fed up of waiting for the federal government to to do this, Mm. and the ACT, first off in 2004, Victoria in 2006, Queensland in 2019, have enacted bills of rights. And you know what? The sky hasn't fallen in. We haven't become a a lawyer's picnic where everyone's running off to court to to sue for their rights.
1: The sky hasn't fallen in, but have they been useful?
0: They have been useful in interesting ways. There have been some some, uh, helpful judgments from the courts, not many, but a few that have given us some guidance. But where I think they've been helpful is that they have changed the attitude and they have stimulated conversations. So... When the Charter of Rights was introduced in Victoria, every local government authority had training about the Charter of Rights and what their obligations were. The same with many other statutory bodies because it's it's statutory government entities that are required to comply with Charter of Rights. So I think it has been preventative, if you like, of more human rights being committed because our public servants, our local government uh, employees, and people generally are more aware that actually we need to consider human rights when making these decisions.
1: Uh, michael, you you call, I think in your in your book for a, a charter, a statutory bill of rights as well. You think that's necessary and and would help in your goal of getting rights at the centre of of
2: policymaking? I think for all the same reasons with that Paula mentioned, and, and uh, you know I mean I think, Maybe the, the, one of the reasons people don't like this, the, the, the language of the Bill of Rights stuff that you mentioned with the US is that it's kind of treated as this thing that is cast in stone. And I think that what you need to have is this almost like a, a living document, something that's con- continuously being worked at. So maybe you have the, the legislation in place, but you also have some kind of commission that keeps, keeps reviewing it and amending it, as, as you mentioned. I think that's important. The other thing is actually the, the training of the people who are making policy matters too because then you have this kind of statement of these are the things that we value and then there's a challenge for people on a day-to-day basis with their policy making to see how they can take that insight and weave it into the policy and my concern is that too often policy gets made and we think later on about okay so what's the human rights part of this and that's a problem. It well, does
0: create yeah. this lens through which we look at issues. And, and when I say there's been some helpful decisions, one of them was from the coroner's court where Tanya Day was uh, died in police custody where she had been removed from a train that she was on from Mildura to Melbourne because of she was drunk. Now, and she was Indigenous. And what the coroner looked at was the role that systemic racism played in the decision of the conductor on the on the, tra- on the train, sorry, to treat her from a, as a criminal rather than from a health perspective, and that's an example of the coroner now saying, "Well, actually, let's use human rights, right to not be discriminated against, and think about the training, for example, that." transport workers get for dealing with people who are drunk and disorderly. And in fact, in Victoria, the offence of public drunkenness has now been removed from our criminal law books. Mm. Mm. So the charter, I think, played a pivotal role in the framing and the language and the approach to issues like that.
1: I mean, you're right to point to the US as a source of discomfort uh, for people as far as bills of rights are concerned. And what we've seen in the United States in recent times is transparently political appointments to the Supreme Court, where judges, even before they've been appointed, are giving guarantees about how they'll vote on certain rights issues, i.e. Roe versus Wade, on, on abortion. I mean, it really, does it not bring into question constitutional bills of rights per se, because they will necessarily be adjudicated upon by judges who will necessarily be appointed by politicians who want certain outcomes from those judges.
0: I think this is one area where it's really unhelpful to compare ourselves to the US for several reasons, but one of which is for example, that judges in America are appointed for life, and that means for life. So you can get people in their 80s and 90s making decisions that are absolutely out of step with society as a whole in America. And I think it's really interesting that yesterday, Kansas was the first state to have a referendum on abortion, and they overwhelmingly said, we don't want to outlaw abortion in our state. Kansas in the South, a very conservative state, going, US Supreme Court, you got it wrong. So we don't want to give too much power to judges. But in Australia, our model of judicial appointments and our model of human rights acts that we do have in the three jurisdictions I mentioned do not give that same sort of power to judges that we have seen with the US Supreme Court.
1: I've been talking to Professor Paula Gerber and Professor Michael Mintrom. Time now for some questions from the audience.
0: Some studies have shown that virtual reality technology can help people experience and consequently care about issues that they may otherwise feel disconnected from. Uh, What potential do you see virtual reality technology having in the promotion and development of human rights? I think it it has a potential to play a really valuable role. Uh, As a parent of young children, I know how much they like engaging in online gaming and Amnesty International has actually developed a human rights game. And I think that any tools that we can use to get people interested in human rights and to appreciate what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes is, is very valuable. But we also don't necessarily need that sort of technology. One of the the films that I think should be mandatory viewing in schools is Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes, which is a very old black and white documentary from, I think it was England, where they divided children according to eye colour. Boy, did that give them a sense of what it felt like to be treated differently for some arbitrary attribute that you have. So yes, let's use technology to further our uh, engagement and empathy in our community. Uh,
1: With recent developments such as the National Construction Code that are ensuring a certain amount of uh, buildings have to have diamond standard accessibility, which is not just great for the disability community but general aging in place, what other uh, significant advancements in um, even infrastructure in the way that we have our lives in our cities uh, would really be great across all these spheres?
0: Another hat I wear, in fact, uh, was wearing on another episode of Big Ideas that I did a while ago, is that I'm also a construction lawyer. And the one area that I've been able to find a sort of a convergence of interest is in disability access to buildings. So the National Construction Code is a huge step forward. It requires that all new dwellings, houses, apartments have to have entrances that don't have any steps, showers that don't have any steps. And can I tell you, as a mother of twins that had to push a double stroller around, (laughs) that is good news for everyone, not just the the, uh, disability community. And the same with access to public transport. I I know a lot of people who uh, have disabilities that make mobility disabilities, and yes, we have tram stops that uh, are accessible to them in sort of inner Melbourne, but if they want to go anywhere else, it's, it's a problem. Flying, Jetstar... And King case, where Jetstar was held to be entitled to discriminate against a woman in a wheelchair who wanted to fly on a particular flight, because they already had two people in wheelchairs on that flight, and their rule was that only two people with wheelchairs could be accommodated on any on any particular flight. The court held, yes, that it was discrimination on the basis of disability, but it would cause unjustifiable hardship to Jetstar to force them to take three people in wheelchairs on a flight. So, you know, there is so many areas that we need to adjust our thinking to recognise that discriminating against people with disabilities is harmful for all of us and having accessibility is beneficial to everyone. Just walk down Collins Street, you will see so many shops that are not accessible to people with disability because there is a step maybe, you know, 10 centimetres high to get into it. Mm. Removing that would change uh, the accessibility for so many people.
1: That was Paula Gerber, Professor of Human Rights Law and Michael Mintrom. Professor of Public Policy, both from Monash University. Michael's current book is called Advancing Human Rights. That discussion was hosted by the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law. More details are available on the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.